Well, one of the challenges of parenting is teaching kids the difference between what we want and what we need. Right? Um, I find myself saying, no, you don't need to watch this movie that all your friends have watched. Right? No, you don't need another video game console. You know, of course, I don't always get it right in my use of those words. Uh, you know, boys, we need to clean up before mom gets home or we're going to be in trouble. Right? And actually that, actually, that one is probably the correct use of need. But, but as we get older, you know, our desires change. Uh, and our language may become more, more precise and more sophisticated. But I think we still get those categories confused, don't we? I really need this job promotion. Man, what a day. I, could, I really need that glass of wine. You know, we've had a crazy week. We, we don't need to go to church this morning. You know, we all go through life with difficulties, with stresses and hardships. And, and those pressures mess with our priorities. Our, our desires become needs. We grow blind to our true needs. And our perspective becomes all confused. And yet through it all, God sees us perfectly. He sees our troubles. He sees our pain. And he sees exactly what we need. Friends, what if God loved you so much that he didn't just give you whatever you wanted, but he gave you truly what you needed? Yeah, would you want a God like that? This morning, we are continuing our very occasional series through 1 Samuel. Uh, feel free to turn there in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. You know, up to this point, we have seen how God has established Samuel as judge over all of Israel. Through his leadership, Samuel has provided law and order throughout the land, teaching God's word. And the people have flourished. But now Samuel is growing old. And now the people are thinking about the future. They want a king. And God will not only give them what they want, but he will show them what they need. If you're taking notes this morning, I have one big idea for my sermon this morning. One big idea. If you want to write something down to take away with you, it's this. We want a king like the nations. We want a king like the nations. But instead, we need a spirit-filled king. But instead, we need a spirit-filled king who makes us faithful to God. We want a king like the nations. But instead, we need a spirit-filled king who makes us faithful to God. And those three parts are my outline. All right? We want a king like the nations, point one. But instead, we need a spirit-filled king, point two, who makes us faithful to God, point three. We've got a lot of text to cover this morning. Uh, I'm going to be jumping around. You're going to be helped if you have Bibles open in front of you so you can follow along as I read. I'm not going to be able to read all four chapters. Uh, but let me encourage you, even this afternoon, if you have time, go back and read through all the parts that I skip uh, and, and reflect on what we talk about today. I pray that as we hear from God's word, that our wants and our needs 
would be aligned with God's will for our lives. All right, so point number one, we want a king like the nations. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. Well, this section begins, as I said, as the people of Israel are thinking about a transition from Samuel. Uh, Samuel has served as a judge over Israel for his lifetime. And and this is what's been going on for, for the past many decades in the history of Israel. One of the challenges of the judges, however, is that there's never really a clear succession plan. Uh, It wasn't like a monarchy where sort of you you keep reigning according to that family or that house. No, these judges that we see throughout the book of Judges in the Old Testament uh, were were made up of all unlikely leaders appointed by God. You you have Ehud, the left-handed warrior, or you have Deborah, the prophetess, or Gideon, the fearful soldier, or Samuel, the boy prophet. You know, while the judges served, The people had stability. But once the judge died, what we would see again and again is that Israel would go back to their old ways, leading to idolatry and defeat. And so now now the time has come. Samuel's old. Israel sees that Samuel's sons are corrupt. And so the elders bring a solution. Appoint us a king to judge us like the nations. And that last phrase is really the key here. Like the nations the nations, right? The elders don't just want a king. They want a king like the nations, which is fascinating to think about because God's plan for his people had always been that they would be distinct from the nations, that that they would serve as a light to the nations, a light in a dark world, attracting people to God. But now here, the elders of Israel want to be like the nations. Samuel hears this. And he's disturbed. But he doesn't lash out. No, he prays to God. Friends, it's always a good response when you're discouraged to pray to God. So so look at verse 7 and see how God responds. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. You know, God responds in this surprising way. He doesn't thunder at the people, He doesn't withdraw His presence. No, he responds with this amazing patience, doesn't he? He comforts Samuel. Don't take this personally. It's not you. It's me. It's not you. It's me, right? Uh, They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being their king. 
And in fact, this is nothing new in Israel's history, he's saying. From the day he brought them up out of Egypt, they have always been tempted to turn away from him and turn to other gods. Here they're not turning to another god. They're asking for a king. They're not bowing down before an idol, but it's still the same fundamental sin. They have rejected God. And yet, amazingly, God says, okay, obey. Obey them to what they're saying. You know, what's so interesting about this request that that these elders are bringing is that God had already anticipated that this time would come. We we read this earlier in our service in Deuteronomy 17, right? That that time would come, Moses said, when the people would ask for a king. And, And God doesn't condemn them for it. But instead, he makes it clear that, that they should not pick a king like, like the nations. No, this should be a king that God would choose. This should be a king from among their own brothers. A king that would not accumulate military might or foreign wives or riches. But instead, a king who would copy the law of Moses by hand. And who would read it and meditate on it all the days of his life. It should be a king who would fear the Lord. And keep all of his commands. Who would be a humble king among the people. And lead them in obedience to God. But this is not what the people have in mind. They want a king like the nations. A a, a powerful warrior. Who would rule his people with might. And crush their enemies. And make Israel great. Well, God tells them. Give the people what they want, but warn them first about what they're asking for. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain out of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. The king that they want, like the nations, will take and take and take and take the best of all that the people have. How does Samuel know all this? Because this is what the kings of the nations are like. To be a king in the ancient Near East was to have sovereign power to take whatever you want. This is what sovereign power does in a fallen world. And we might not live in a monarchy today, but we know what this is like. How do the people respond? Verse 19. No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
the people of Israel want a king like the nations because they want to be like the nations. And this is the king they're going to get. There's so much for us to think about here. First of all, we are more like Israel than we realize. We also want to be like the nations. And the most fundamental way that we want to be like the world is that we all want to take God's place on the throne of our lives. We want to be in charge. We want to have sovereign power to do and to take whatever we want. When we look at the world all around us, that's what we see. We see people in charge of their own lives, getting ahead, getting the best that they can out of this world, enjoying themselves, and we want to do what they're doing. We want, to, we want that for ourselves also. And if we can mix it up with our religion, all the better. right? Like Israel, we, st- we still come to God with our requests, but we don't come to him as the king who loves us and knows what's good for us. No, we come to God with our plans, our desires, wanting him to do for us what we want. And all the while, we want to replace him from his rightful place as our loving and wise king. Do you see how insulting it was for Israel to go to God, their king, and ask for a king? I remember when I was a middle schooler, a teenager, probably kind of rebellious, growing up in an immigrant family, you know, at one point being pretty envious of my friends who had nice clothes, who lived in nice homes. I remember one time half joking with my parents, man, I wish I was a part of that family, a family that was better off. Isn't that terrible? I remember my mom telling me later, How painful that was for her to hear that. But this is what we're like. God, my protection. I really need this job to give me protection. God, you're the one who fulfills my heart. But God, can you give me this relationship here? Because this is what's going to really bring me true fulfillment. God, you are my satisfaction. Uh, But I really need this dream fulfilled in order to be satisfied. We come as rebellious children, wanting God to give us all kinds of things that we think will provide what only God can provide. You know, and sometimes God in his amazing patience and grace provides those things. Part of the reason he does that is so that we come to learn that those things are not all that we think they're cracked up to be. They fall short. That only God can provide true protection and satisfaction and fulfillment. You know, it's important for us to know here that just because God grants you what you have asked for doesn't mean that God approves of all your desires or that all of your motives were pure and right. In fact, mixed with all of our best intentions are often selfish God-ignoring motives. The point of all this is not that we need to become sort of ultra-introspective and about our motives and about everything we could ever want. Nor is the point here that we would become Buddhists and rid ourselves of all desires. No, that's part of how God made us, to desire things. 
But rather the point is, is the humble recognition of our fallen condition. Even when we want good things, we so often want them in wrong ways, in sinful ways, in God-ignoring ways. And so at the end of the day, as, even as we pray for things, as we desire things, we hold up the mirror of Scripture to ourselves and to our desires. In, in every prayer, we are in awe of how gracious and how patient God is with, with us, His children. And even as God gives us good gifts, we receive them humbly. We recognize that we haven't earned this. We, we don't deserve this. No, we are receiving good gifts from a kind and gracious God who gives good gifts and who deals patiently with us. All the more we should give thanks and praise to the God from whom all blessings flow. And even while we come to God with all of our prayers and requests, we trust Him and we distrust the false promises of this world. You know, there is no worldly blessing that will satisfy our deepest longings. I appreciate Samuel being so dramatic in his warning of Israel against how this king is going to be horrible to them. Uh, we are all too likely to think that if we just had this, our lives would be perfect. You know, and Hollywood and social media and all these things just keep feeding those lies. And so we need the truth of the Bible to counteract those illusions. We need God's word, again, like a mirror. And we need the voices of Samuel in our lives that will tell us, actually, even if you get that, life's still going to be hard. Uh, and those things are going to bring their own hardships with them. Well, like Israel, we want a king like the nations. But in fact, what we need is a spirit-filled king. Number two, what we need is a spirit-filled king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9. Verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ebiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Well, here we are introduced to Saul. What do we learn about him? Well, he comes from a wealthy family. He is a handsome young man. Nobody else was more handsome than he was. And not only that, but he's tall. Head and shoulders above everybody else. You know, being tall gives you an advantage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, as a warrior, you, you would be a formidable warrior if you were tall. You know, here is the kind of king that the nations would want. Straight out of central casting. You know, think Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, right? Handsome, tall, big muscles, baritone. When he smiles, like his teeth glimmer, right? But at this point, Saul is no king. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest of all of Israel's tribes. And like all, like all the young men, he works for his dad. In verses 3 to 14, we find him going on a search for some missing donkeys. It's actually pretty funny when you read this account. Even though he's like physically impressive, we see him like looking for donkeys and being outwitted by these donkeys going from place to place. 
And yet behind the scenes, God is working out his purposes. Eventually, Saul comes to the city of Zuth, and his servant says, hey, there's Samuel's here. Let's go ask Samuel if he can tell us where our donkeys are. You know, if you've ever, if you ever thought that it was glamorous to be a prophet in Israel, <laughs> I wonder if you spent like all your time just telling people where to find their donkeys or like some random thing like that. Well, Saul and his servant eventually do find Samuel, and we pick it up there in verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. In the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not you and for all your father's house? Well, it turns out that God is sovereign over the wandering of donkeys, over the happenstance meetings. He reveals to Samuel that he will send to him a Benjamite who will be prince over my people Israel. Notice that God doesn't call Saul king over my people Israel. He calls him prince. Different word. And this Saul will save God's people from the Philistines. The next day when Saul shows up, God points him out. And so Samuel reveals to Saul that the donkeys have been found, but he invites Saul to come eat with him and, and at, the sacrif- at, the, at this sacrificial feast, and he gives them this kind of cryptic blessing. We see in verse 21, Saul has no idea what's going on. He was not looking for anything special. He was just looking for his donkeys. But Samuel honors Saul at this feast, gives him the best portions, gives him the, the best seat. And after the feast in the morning, Samuel dismisses Saul's servant. And he talks, with Sam, he talks with Saul in private. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, on Saul's head. And he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. You know, prior to this event, this ritual anointing was restricted to the tabernacle. And to the priesthood there, to the priests who serve at the tabernacle. This anointing established the priesthood as a distinct office in Israel. But now... Samuel anoints Saul, marking Israel's monarchy as a new divine institution also in Israel. As the Lord's anointed, Saul is God's unique representative before the people to reign over them. 
and to save them from their enemies. Most of all, the anointing is a symbol of how God will pour out His Spirit upon His anointed servant. That's what the oil symbolizes. The oil comes down on on, on the person's head over his body. It it symbolizes God's Spirit coming upon that servant. And really, that's what we see in the next section. Uh, In these Saul, Samuel is going to give Saul these three signs that are going to be fulfilled. Samuel prophesies that three signs are going to take place to confirm that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. We see in chapter 11, uh, chapter 10, verse 2, that the first sign is that Saul is going to hear about the donkeys being found. And in verse 3, the second sign is that Saul is going to meet these three men on their way to a sacrificial feast. One of them is going to give Saul loaves of bread. And now look at the third sign, verse 5. Chapter 10, verse 5. And after that, you shall come to Gilbeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Why these three signs about the donkeys and the men going to sacrifice and the filling of the Spirit? Well, I think these three signs all correspond with what just took place. It's, it's sort of a, a reenactment of what Saul has just experienced. Saul was looking for donkeys. He's going to meet some men. We're going to tell him about the donkeys. Saul meets Samuel, going to a sacrificial feast. Now he's about to meet some other men, three other men, going to a sacrificial feast. And now Saul has just been anointed by Samuel. What does that mean? Well, the Spirit is going to come upon Saul. It's this last sign that's emphasized by the text. Because to be the anointed one is to be the one who is filled with God's Spirit. And as a result, when he meets this group of prophets, Saul is transformed. God gives him another heart, and he joins the procession and begins declaring God's praises. All this comes to pass to confirm that, that yes, Samuel wasn't just making this up. He really is the one chosen by God to be prince over Israel, to rule his people. And yet in the following verses in chapter 10, we see that this transformation doesn't last. He goes back home. His uncle says, hey, what have you been up to? And Saul's like, ah, just hanging out. Doesn't, Doesn't reveal anything. Not only that, but in chapter 10, verses 17 to 24, Samuel assembles all the people of Israel for the official unveiling of the new king. They cast lots, and by God's sovereign power, the lots fall to the tribe of Benjamin, to Saul's clan, to Saul's house, and eventually to Saul himself. But they look around and they can't find him. Verse 21, when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Okay, so apparently uh, he is hiding. And the people go and fetch Saul. And Samuel brings this tall, handsome man up before the people 
Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And in verse 24, the people cry out, Long live the king. This is the first reference of Saul as king instead of prince in this passage. It comes from the people. Well, the chapter concludes with everybody going back home. The soldiers are gathering to Saul. Yet not all is well. There are some who reject Saul as their king. Apparently, they were not impressed with their new king hiding among the baggage. This is the picture of Saul we're given. Tall, strong, handsome, and yet at the same time reluctant, even fearful, unsure of what in the world is going on. In other words, apart from God's spirit, this king is going to be hiding among the baggage. He is not going to be leading his people. And yet, Saul is the anointed one. And God has promised to give him his spirit. And so chapter 11 opens with Nahash the Ammonite coming against Jabesh-Gilead to the east of Israel. You've got the Philistines in the west. You've got the Ammonites to the east. You know, and Nahash threatens to conquer Jabesh-Gilead and secure the eastern front. Now the thing about Jabesh-Gilead uh, is actually, I mean, fascinating backstory. Jabesh Gilead was despised by Israel. If you turn back to Judges 21, you don't have to do that now. You can read that later. They actually failed up. They failed to turn out for a battle earlier in Israel's history. And so Israel actually went in and like defeated them and punished them. So it's like a, they were like a despised city. And so the people of Jabesh Gilead send out word asking for help but they're not even sure if anybody's going to come, right? Well, Saul, in verse 5, in chapter 11, is working out in the field. Apparently, he's gone back to his normal day job. And he hears news of what has happened. And now look at chapter 11, verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And so remarkably, Saul is able to unite the people, even to save a city like Jabesh Gilead. Skip down to verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. And so the Ammonites are defeated to the east. The eastern border is secured. This section ends with the people gathering together to reaffirm Saul's kingship. It seems that God's spirit stays with Saul here on. Uh, Saul spares those men who rejected him, demonstrating something of God's wisdom uh, in these early days. And with Saul's kingdom firmly established, the people of Israel are united, and they are rescued from their enemies. You know, what made the difference between Saul, chapters 10 and 11? You know, Saul hiding among the baggage, and Saul, this conquering king, defeating their enemies. Well, the difference was not Saul's good looks or Saul's height. No, like all the judges before him, the difference was God's spirit. What God's people need is a spirit 
filled king. You know, there's so much, once again, there's so much here for us to think about for our lives. Israel wanted a king like the nations. They, they valued those things that the nations valued. I wonder how the world has shaped your values. You know, we live in a world that still values the same things. We value outward beauty. We value wealth. Organizational prowess and effectiveness. We admire leaders who get things done. We admire beautiful celebrities. Strong, victorious athletes. Where in your life are you most shaped by this world's values? Is it when it, when it comes to your own self-image? Your own self-worth? Is it at work where you're tempted to do all that it takes to get ahead, defeat the competition? Is it in your parenting where you care more about your kids being good at sports or being popular than about them being humble? You know, don't be surprised. If you take on the world's values, very soon you're going to take on the world's ways. The thing about Christianity is that God has come to turn all those values upside down. We don't need a handsome, powerful, efficient king. No, we need a spirit-filled king. We need a king who fears God and who is filled with God's spirit. Apart from the spirit, our best talents and our best gifts are worthless. What we need is not a king marked by the values of this world. We need a king who is filled with God's spirit and who lives out this spirit-filled life from beginning to end. And this is exactly who Jesus of Nazareth was. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about this coming Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. In other words, all those Hollywood movies about Jesus are inaccurate. Jesus was not a handsome hero with long flowing hair. No, he had no outward form or majesty or beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was despised. He was rejected. At the end of his life, he was hung on a cross like a criminal and put to death. And yet, once again, here, what God says about, through the prophet Isaiah about this ugly, crucified man. Isaiah 42, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Yes, this son of a carpenter from the backwoods village of Nazareth, he was God's spirit-filled king. And he lived a spirit-filled life, a life of perfect love, of perfect courage, teaching the truth, rejecting sin, submitting perfectly to God, not perverting justice like Samuel's sons, but loving the poor, the outcast, the oppressed, proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. 
And in going to the cross, the king went to war against the greatest enemy of God's people. He went to war against our sin. There on the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself. The kings of the nations come and they take and they take and they take our best things. But Jesus, the spirit-filled king, he comes and he takes our sin and he takes our shame and he takes our guilt and he takes our punishment upon himself. And then he gives us his perfect righteousness. Why? So that by his death, our ransom would be paid. And by and his perfect life would be credited to our account. So that we might be reconciled to God. Oh friend, this spirit-filled king has not come to take from us. As if he needed anything from us. No, he has come to give. He has come to give to us all that we could ever need. On the cross, he gives us his life. And then, after giving us his life, he gives us his presence. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his love. And when we die, and we are joined to him, he gives us himself. And he gives us all that he has forever and ever and ever. This is the king who is filled with God's spirit, who has come not to take, but to give. And the most wonderful part about this is that the Jesus who died did not remain in the grave, but on the third day he arose, he ascended to heaven, and even today he reigns over our lives. He reigns over the universe. And that day is coming when he will come back. Jesus is not the Hollywood king that we wanted, but he is the spirit-filled, anointed king that we need. Friends, perhaps you are hoping for a different kind of king. One who supported all of your political and social and relational and professional agendas. One who took away all of your troubles and hardships and fulfilled all your personal dreams. Friends, that may be the king that you want. That is not the king that you need. You need God's anointed. You need the spirit-filled king, Jesus, the Messiah who came to conquer your worst enemies, sin and death. And even today, by turning away from your rebellion to God and trusting in his anointed king, you can be reconciled to God and you can be saved. You can have the promise of eternal life with him. We all want a king like the nations, but we need a spirit-filled king who makes us faithful. Number three, we need a spirit-filled king who makes us faithful. So finally, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel's farewell speech to the nation. A king has been established. The baton has been passed. And now Samuel will come before the people and speak one last time. In verses 1 through 5, Samuel asks the people to testify against him. Did he ever defraud anyone? Was he ever unjust? Did he ever oppress anyone? And the people respond, no, no, you've never done any of that. In other words, Samuel here 
confirms that they were not asking for a king because somehow God had failed to provide a righteous ruler for them. No, this, this transition has happened because of their own hard hearts. So having established this in verses 6 through 18 of chapter 12, now Samuel is going to testify against the people. And in verses 6 through 11, Samuel recounts the story of Israel up to this point, how from the moment they left Egypt, Israel again and again forgot God and went astray. Even though God forgave them and rescued them time and time again, still the people kept going astray. And this latest episode of asking for a king is just another instance of that same problem. Now look at verse 12 of chapter 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. You know, appointing a human king did not change the fact that God was still the king of the universe. Right? No matter what system of government you live under, whether you live under totalitarianism or a monarchy or a dictatorship or a democracy, God is still the king. And to demonstrate this, Samuel calls upon God to send rain and thunder, which typically didn't happen during that harvest season. And the Lord did that. The Lord sent thunder and rain, demonstrating that he was still the king, that they were accountable to him. And all the people feared the Lord and Samuel, the text says. And the people became convicted about their sin. Look at verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. From now on, Samuel is no longer judge of Israel. But with this transition, he establishes the office, the office of a prophet in Israel. Uh, the prophet, we see his job here, right here. The prophet's job is to come alongside the king 
and to pray for the nation, pray for the people, and to instruct them according to God's word, and even instruct the king, the word of the Lord. And now that they have gone through all this trouble of appointing a whole new system of government, of establishing this tall and handsome king, what is their task going forward? Well, it's the same as it has always been. It's the exact same thing. Serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside for after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. You know, Samuel's word to them is the exact same as it has always been. This is the exact same task that Adam and Eve had back in the garden. This is the exact same task that Israel had from the very first day that they left Egypt. And it's the exact same task that they have now, living under a king. They must love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, with all of their strength. They must serve God with all their heart. They must reject idols, worshiping him alone. No matter how great their king, if they fail to do that, they will be swept away, both you and your little king. Well, we know how the story goes. If you've read the Old Testament, Israel fails to do this. The kings of Israel fail to be faithful. The people of Israel fail to be faithful. And in the end, God fulfills his word. They are swept away and carried off into exile. And yet when we read that today, we don't gloat over the people of Israel when we see their failures. No, we tremble because we know exactly how that works, right? We are deeply aware of how this task to be faithful applies to all of us, applies to all of humanity, and how often we fall short. You know, this call remains on our lives today. Maybe you've gone through some big life transition, right? So some of you have graduated from high school. Some of you have graduated from college. Some of you have recently gotten married. Or you've become a parent. Or maybe you've gotten a new job promotion. Or maybe you're approaching retirement. You know, you, you have this bright future ahead of you. Or, or, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe something terrible has happened. Maybe you are struggling with illness or or unemployment, or, or difficult relationships. And all you see ahead of you is, is difficulties. You know, no matter how fresh and exciting or painful or difficult your life is, your fundamental task remains the same. Serve the Lord with all of your heart, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to empty things that cannot profit or deliver you. Be faithful to the Lord. Love Him. Trust Him. Obey His word. Walk by faith. This is what God called you to do before those things happen. This is what God calls you to do now that those things have happened. It, doesn't, it doesn't, hasn't changed. This is what you must be about for the rest of your life. Be faithful to the Lord who loves you, to the King who reigns over you. Every, in every stage of life, your calling is to be faithful to God. And I think this is true for us corporately as a church also. I mean, you know, we, 
perhaps we, we have great dreams and hopes for, for us as, together as a church. Ah, maybe someday, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful we find ourselves as a church packed to the gills, right? Filled with hundreds of people. A, a, a bustling church here in Kansas City. You know, maybe God will someday give our pastors this amazing platform uh, where they are preaching and writing and doing all kinds of cool things. Maybe someday we'll have like a giant budget where we're sending out missionaries all over the world. You know, whatever grand things happen, or if nothing happens, or if things decline, whatever happens, our fundamental call as a church remains the same. Be faithful. Serve the Lord with all of your heart wherever he takes you. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep trusting in Christ. Keep walking in holiness. Keep loving one another. May we never be distracted from that fundamental call to live as a gospel church together. How do we do this? If Israel failed, what hope do we have? Well, our hope is that King Jesus is far, 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 far better than King Saul. Right? The prophets spoke of a day when God, through his anointed king, would give his people his spirit. And that this spirit would change the hearts of his people so that now they would be able to live in faithfulness to him. And friends, this is what Jesus has come to do. Our king gave his life for us in order to purchase us for himself. And now, with a king who has loved us so much, with a king who has given us his all, we gladly give him our all. Jesus did not die merely so that our sins might be forgiven. No, he died so that our sins might be defeated. Saul could never give his people a new heart to obey God, but the risen King Jesus gives his people his spirit so that we are transformed from the inside out. And this spirit empowers our faithfulness. So, so if you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus not only commands you to be faithful, but Jesus makes that faithfulness possible. And, and he not only makes that faithfulness possible, but he promises that you will be faithful. He promises that you will be faithful. King Jesus is better than Saul because he makes you faithful. He makes his people holy. And this is how God fulfills verse 22 in this passage. For his own name's sake, God has not forsaken his people, but he has made us his own. He has done this through the finished work of his anointed king, Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you have God's spirit poured out on you so that you are no longer who you used to be. You have been changed. You now walk in newness of life, in obedience to God, just like your king. And because of that, you will never be swept away. But you will live, you'll be saved on that final day to live with your king forever. So even this week, friends, go out as the faithful people of God. Right? Represent your king. Declare to the world what he has done for you. Reflect your king's love to you 
now to a fallen world and battle the devil's lies. You know, you are not going to be perfect. You will fall into sin. But when you do, confess that sin. Repent of it. And trust in the finished work of your king. And then continue to walk in faithfulness. This is the king that God has given us. And this is the king that we need. Let's pray together. And even before I lead us in prayer, take a moment now to reflect on what you've heard and respond to God even in your own words. King Jesus, we praise you. Lord, you are the king who takes from us all of our filth, all of our guilt, the wrath that we were owed for our sins. And in exchange, you give to us eternal life. You give to us the love of God, favor everlasting. You give us yourself. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you. We bow the knee. We declare our allegiance to you. What a wonderful king you are. Oh, Lord, and we gladly give you our lives in return. Oh, Lord, how we desire to be faithful. How we desire to spend all of ourselves in loving response to you. And so we ask, Lord, our greatest heart's desire is that you, by your spirit, even this week, would make us faithful, that we would know the depths of your love and that we would respond in faithful obedience. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.